Hello and welcome to Found, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the startups. It's me, your host, Dominic Maduri-Davis, and this week I'm flying solo, so there won't be an outro to this episode. We definitely missed Becca, but luckily we had a great guest. Today I'm talking with Ariel Kay, the founder and CEO of Parachute, a betting and home goods brand. We talked about what it was like building in the D2C heyday, the ups and downs of fundraising, and the challenges of being a solo founder. So let's get into it. Hey, Ariel, welcome to Found. Thanks for having me. So I guess the easiest way to start off is, can you tell us a little bit about Parachute? Sure. So Parachute is a home lifestyle brand. We launched 10 years ago in January of 2014 with a small assortment of bedding products. And the vision was always to be a multi-category brand to create and design products for every room throughout the home. And over the past 10 years, we have expanded beyond bedding into products like towels and robes and window treatments and rugs and baby and some furniture and a mattress that will change your life. We've also opened 26 retail stores over the past few years. So we are truly an omni-channel business today and known for quality and comfort and really believe that the products that we create can enhance your life and create a more comfortable home. And so that is what we set out to do and what inspires us and keeps us excited about continuing to build. What inspired you to launch the company? Were you looking to disrupt the betting category or? Yeah, you know, so my background was in advertising. I was working on the strategic side of creative at a big agency and spending a lot of time thinking about the consumer and the millennial consumer in specific and how to connect and motivate. And so really loved, just have always loved kind of thinking about consumers and what drives people to purchase and how to create brands that have real value in people's lives that are beyond just a product or a transaction, like how do you actually build a relationship? And then simultaneously, I was obsessed with home and design and was helping friends decorate their apartments while I was living in New York and really became a super consumer in the space and you know, had one of those moments where I was shopping for sheets in a big box retailer and just, you know, was was surprised by the lack of quality, by the way that products were being packaged, and just the amount of marketing gimmicks that were being used to sell products like thread count. And I, I started to think more critically about the opportunity. I mean, this is also around the time we're in 2012 now. And this is around the time that D2C brands were just taking off. And so I also really felt connected to that type of shopping. But, you know, had one of those aha moments where I realized, you know, what if I could merge my love for home and design and my love for building brands and create something different. So, you know, 10 plus years ago, no one could tell you what sheets you had on your bed. They could tell you maybe what store you went to, but there was really no brand in this category and definitely nothing online. And so, I suppose there was a desire to disrupt because something like this had never been done before, but really just a desire to improve the shopping experience to create you know, more premium products at an accessible price and a desire to educate the customer that sheets and towels and products that are with throughout your home can really change the whole aesthetic of your home and really impact the comfort that I think we all desire from our home. And so I just hit the ground running. I mean, I, I became so consumed with this idea and decided that, you know, this was such a big opportunity. I had to see it through. Yeah. Oh my goodness. No, it's definitely true with the 
When I think of millennial brands like this, it seems like there was a period, I guess it was 2012, 2014, the early DTC, where millennials came in and really said, I want something more from everything that's already existing. It has to be better. It has to be more personalized too. something that you really, really connect with. And so it's just really interesting to think about even like the towels and the sheets in your home as something that you really need to connect with. Well, and that was the feedback we got early on, which was so inspiring and so validating. We heard immediately from customers, I've been looking for a product like this. You know, I think this whole movement towards value and quality and cutting out the middleman and like what that means and brands that actually wanted to listen to the customer, involve with the customer and create something that was different was really appealing. But from the moment we launched, we just kept hearing, I've been waiting for a brand like this. I've been waiting for a brand like this. And so it became very obvious early on that we were onto something and that there was an appetite for this type of brand. And people were looking for products like ours and they truly were not in the market. So it was a very exciting launch moment, moving quickly into that validation that there was just a real interest in what we were doing and that and that we could earn the trust of our customers to then expand beyond just sheets and into bath and other categories throughout the home. And so what was pre-launch like? Because I'm thinking when you want to launch a company like this, what is the first thing you do really? Well, the idea really came to fruition at the end of 2012. I had a conversation with a friend of mine and said, I have this idea, I want to do this. And you know, everyone sort of thought, I was crazy. I mean, I think the idea of jumping into starting a business, especially for someone like me who had never launched a business before, had never worked at a startup, you know, did not have any retail experience. But I just became so consumed and so passionate. And so I had been working in advertising. I decided to leave my job. I put together a high-level business plan of what I thought the opportunity was and what I thought the vision for Parachute could be. And I actually... Once I had sort of solidified that, I got on a plane and went directly to Europe and met with 15 factories because I realized that in order for me to really do this, I had to be able to do more than just conceptualize the idea. I actually had to understand how these products were made. And that's how my brain works. Like I need to get into the physical and to the, you know, actual product. And so I took this trip. I met with 15 factories, many of which thought I was absolutely crazy for, you know, showing up with a suitcase full of fabrics and saying, I want to do something like this, but a little bit more like this. And what do you have available? And, you know, teach me everything. And I came back from that trip more energized than ever and just so determined at that point to see this through and to really create this brand. I moved to Los Angeles. I met with a design agency. You know, I just I just started putting one foot in front of the other. And, you know, those times were very exciting and also very isolating. And nerve-wracking um, because I had left this job and I was diving headfirst into something that was completely uncharted territory. So it was a lot of learning on the go, but really rewarding. It was a roller coaster. <laughs> Wait, is, yeah. is Europe where most of the beddings are manufactured? What's going on in America? Yeah, you know, so there many, many years ago, like centuries ago, there was a lot of textile manufacturing happening in the U.S. And these days there's almost none. So 
bedding and bedding products are made throughout the world. But for me, I was really attracted to the European heritage story because as I did speak to more people, when I said, where is the best bedding made? Everyone said Italy. Like Italy was where, you know, these very, very high-end premium brands were made. And so as I started to get my footing and started to thinking about, you know, I'm going to be asking people to buy products from a brand that they've just only learned about that has no reviews, you know, is is not proven. But how do I build that trust as quickly as possible? And so it was about the quality and the heritage for me, because I figured that if I could say this is made in Italy, it would conjure this idea of quality and really create, you know, a level of trust saying that this is the same type of quality product that normally would cost, you know, two, three X more and the attention to detail and working with this factory that's been around for over 100 years. That story was really part of the launch. And our manufacturing story continues to be a big part of Parachute today. I mean, we really seek heritage factories that have been in business for hundreds of years. Many of them are family owned still. And you just see the quality and you feel the passion in the product. And, you know, we love telling the story of our of our manufacturers and, and why we went to certain factories and why that makes such a world of a difference. No, that's so funny. I feel like Americans do have like a European bias. If you add like French or Italian in front of anything, it's going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, really good. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's sort of like the lab coat theory. You know, you put a lab coat on and all of a sudden you're you're really smart and a doctor. <laughs> well, I did want to ask about quality now, because what are quality sheets like? What were you looking for when it came to quality and what were consumers looking for? Because, I mean, obviously I'm revealing that my sheets are probably not quality. And so I'm like, what are quality sheets? There were a few things that was really important to me when starting this business. One, working with factories that were sustainable, working with factories that did not use any toxic chemicals, synthetic finishes, or artificial dyes in their products. So really creating the cleanest possible product that I could create. And so that was a baseline for me. So when I was identifying potential partners, I was really looking for factories that were committed to those principles and had the same sort of ethos and rigor around the fibers and where they're from, the certifications of quality that I was looking for. And so that was an initial driver. But really, you know, when I started the brand, thread count was was the one and only quality like distinguishing factor on the market. People said, oh, if it's a high thread count, that's what you're looking for. And what I quickly learned was that that actually was not the case. That is a complete marketing gimmick. And so as I learned and became more knowledgeable about how these products were made, I realized that thread count became this idea maybe 20 years ago. And what really matters is the quality of the fibers. And so we decided to set out and create a brand that never talked about thread count and not because we're hiding it. We just wanted to change the narrative to around what really matters, which is the quality of the fibers, the manufacturing process from end to end, not using these toxic chemicals or synthetic finishes or artificial dyes. And so it was a little bit of reworking and re-educating the customer, which I think people really gravitate towards. People like to feel confident in their purchase. And I think that the debunking the myths of things is something that is exciting for the customer. It gives them like a new sense of understanding. And, and so we were able to use that information as part of our launch strategy and really educate the customer about what matters most. And that was at a time that no one was doing that. I mean, Ocotex was a certification that no one had ever heard of. And we were one of the first people to start talking about it loudly. And now you see it everywhere. 
And that means that there's no toxic chemicals or synthetic finishes throughout the entire manufacturing process. And so holding ourselves to such high standards from the beginning allowed us to really set the tone and, and to, again, build trust with the customer because we were very clear that you know we were going to only be introducing products that were as good for you as they were for the planet and also, you know, you know, be lasting and and timeless in their design. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, because you basically had to re-educate consumers about this thing. I, I could just imagine someone saying like, but despite all of this, what's the thread count? Because now I'm, I know that I would also be like, what's the thread count? And, you know, I mean, the ideal thread count is anywhere between 250 and 400. And so, it, again, and this is not, we, we're not trying to be secretive about, you know, what our thread count is. It was really just how do we talk about what really matters for the customer and and pull back the curtain because, you know, this was a time, especially when we launched, where people were like, 20,000 thread count, 10,000 thread count, you know, and it was just these numbers that were used to elevate price when in reality, to get to those numbers, which are not... They're not regulated, so people could really say anything. But the most basic, you're using a double ply or triple ply in order to get these elevated numbers. And then that actually makes the fabric thicker to the touch and coarser, which is then why you have to use synthetics and why sheets are less breathable and why they pill. So it's like, it's actually the opposite of it. So it was a fun process to be educators and to just bring to light what really matters. How did you combine aesthetics education, and I guess also social media marketing? Because it seems like, I mean, 2012, 2014, this is kind of like the beginning of really like the boom of Instagram and, you know, Twitter and all these things. So how did you kind of combine marketing D2C and millennial aesthetics? Yeah, I mean, so I wanted to create a new aesthetic. And I think that's what we have done most successfully was create this aesthetic that was more laid back and more casual, which is what I felt that I wanted and what uh, many of my friends and peers and people that we spoke to was moving away from this very formal traditional bed, a lot of prints that were happening back then, a lot of like hospital corners used in marketing materials. and, And we wanted our products to feel like, you know, when you get out of your bed and you pull the duvet cover back and you walk away and you're like, oh, it just looks so good. I got got to get back in. You know, so it was how do we create this livable aesthetic that is far more in line with the way that we're actually living? How do we humanize our beds and our bedrooms and make them feel relatable and not so perfect or perfectly done that, you know, it you don't want to mess anything up? And so, you know, as we set out to create this aesthetic, um, we use social media as a, as a form of inspiration. We wanted to educate our customers as well as inspire our customers. And, and we wanted it to be aspirational but attainable. And so we spent a lot of time creating beautiful content for social media, but also encouraging our customers to share. And we were early to the hashtag game of, you know, encouraging people to submit images on social media using the hashtag My Parachute Home and being able to use UGC as a real tool to show just how versatile our products were and how beautiful they were in so many different homes and so many different styles and aesthetics. But really, we think about our products as these foundational products and how can we work for any aesthetic. It was a lot of encouraging that type of share and then also just making sure that we were sharing beautiful imagery because I think fundamentally people want to buy beautiful things and be inspired by beautiful products. And Instagram and Pinterest were perfect platforms for us to showcase 
these images, but we grew alongside social media. You know, we were, it was very early days when I launched and I think about building a brand today and the way that you can leverage social media in such a profound way. I mean, it was, it was a different story back then. More from this conversation right after a quick break. And I definitely want to talk about you being a solo founder, because being a solo founder is just hard. (laughs) Um, Did you ever think about bringing on a co-founder? And how has this journey been for you, I guess, by yourself, in a sense? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely, in the early days, thought about bringing on a co-founder. In 2013, as I started meeting with potential investors and just having conversations with people, you know, that was one of the first questions that I always asked, why are you doing this alone? And sometimes it was, can't you find someone else that wants to do this with you? You know, I also was told by many people that you couldn't launch a brand without a technical co-founder. And that was a prerequisite for potential investment into certain funds. The grass is always kind of greener. There were plenty of moments where I felt so lonely and being a sole founder can be so lonely and and feel like there's so much pressure on your back. One of, I believe, my superpowers and one of the things that I learned very early on was what I'm great at and where I need support. And so as I started building my team, it was really important for me to hire people that could really complement my skill set and fill holes into parts of the business where I needed that support and I needed to bring in experts and people that could really drive and and bring leadership and strategic thinking. And today, you know, we've got an incredible team. Many people on our team have been with the business for nine, eight, seven years. I mean, people that have really been along for the ride. It's it's hard. You know, I I look at some friends who are co-founders and I admire the way that they are able to build together and think how lovely that could have been in those early days where I really felt alone. But there was also a lot of upside in being able to be very nimble, being able to be the sole decision maker, being able to drive the business in a way that I really felt aligned with without other perspectives. I don't think there's one right way at all. But I definitely got pushback from people in the early days about why are you a a sole founder? It's so much more unusual. And I think that's right. I mean, it's hard to start a business and it's hard to, you know, dive into something headfirst without someone else to sit across the table and say, we got this, right? So when you're doing that by yourself, I mean, it just brings, well, it's just a different, it's just a different experience. I was going to ask who and what was your first hire? So my my background is is creative, is marketing. And so I knew that my first hire needed to be someone that was more financially focused. And so I hired someone who came with a banking background, who could build models, who could handle operations. And it was sort of, we divided it by front of house and back of house. So like anything that was consumer facing, product, marketing, thinking about customer experience, people, that was all me. And he took on all of the operational challenges, managing our manufacturers and supply chain and all of that. Of course, then we built out the team, but that was my first hire and it alleviated a lot of pressure. I mean, you know, just being able to have someone that could be in the weeds and in the numbers so that I could focus on all the creative parts of the business, which is where I have the most leverage and and what I love. Yeah. And when did the first hire come? About a month after launch. So I launched the business and was um, a media. I mean, I 
a month after launch and probably six months too late. You know, I mean, I was I was desperate for some support, but I didn't have any capital to pay someone. And so I just, you know, I did it myself. And then as we had this amazing momentum out of the gate and it started to become very obvious that I it was time. So I was introduced to this person. He came to our office. He walked in. I was answering the phone. I was writing emails. I was packing boxes. I mean, I was... I needed 12 more hands to be able to get the job done. And I think that was inspiring for him to just see how much there was to do. And I remember sitting down and saying, this is a fast growing business. Forget about the sheets. Forget about the product. Like, do you want to build something? And he said, yes. And off we went. (laughs) And I definitely want to ask about the fundraising journey because it it seems like you haven't raised, well, as much as as I might have thought you would have raised. You are correct. (laughs) I want to know what that journey was like and pitching investors and what did they say? Um, It's been different every time we've raised. So we raised about $47 million, which again, to your point, is much less than many of our D2C peers who are similar size. I mean, we've, we have definitely, we've been a very disciplined business, but raising money never came particularly easy. You know, I think as a founder, you know, in the early days, people are investing in you, in your vision, and in this idea that you are the right person to lead and build this company. You know, I was able to raise a seed round about three months after I launched And that was because of the early traction that we saw and the product feedback. And it was right on time because we needed that capital to be able to invest in more inventory. I mean, we were, we had sold through inventory so quickly. And then, you know, we raised another round in order to be able to start investing in marketing because we had never spent a dollar in marketing. And for me, it was really about finding partners that believed in the brand and believed in my vision for growth, which was to grow thoughtfully and to test and learn. And knowing that building a brand doesn't happen overnight. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, there was a lot of investment into brands with an expectation that you could become a huge unicorn in in two to three years. And, you know, and, and while that is nice, I really was focused on building a brand that was incredibly healthy and disciplined and focused on the product. And so being able to find partners that were aligned with that vision was critical but fundraising is hard. For every yes, there were about 100 no's. And it can be a very frustrating process and also inspiring process. I tend to be the kind of person that uses a no as, as fuel to my fire and as a way to really energize myself because of the passion that I have to build this brand. It's hard and it's a full-time job. And I think that that's something that a lot of people don't realize is that raising capital takes you away from the day-to-day and it's time consuming. And it's also, for me, I learned so much through that process because people are dissecting your business. They're looking for reasons to say no. And you really get to know your business during that experience in a way that I think is much more granular than the day-to-day. Yeah. I I mean, imagine you also got a little bit more control over how fast you want it to grow the business as well without having too many investors all in the say. Yeah. Being very clear about your vision and and the goal of the brand and the business is important. And I think for me, I always looked at my investors as partners. I wanted them to be very connected to the brand and to the business. I'm a very transparent leader. And so I think In order to get the most value out of your investors and your partners, they need to know what's going on. And so really building that deep relationship, really understanding how they can create value as well is really important. How long did it take you to become profitable through sales? 
You know, we've been profitable at different points in the business. You know, the first, I would say, six years were really just about growth and growing methodically and thoughtfully, but really focusing more on top line. You know, we always understood the levers that needed to be adjusted in order to get to profitability. I think that's really important. And so we've had profitable years. We've had growth-focused years that are very intentional. And today we are profitable, and that's something that we will continue to be moving forward. There's a balance. You know, people ask me that all the time. Should we be profitable from day one? What's the right time to be profitable? And I think really it's it's important to have a clear understanding of the business and what it would take to be profitable if you're focusing on growth. And then knowing that in order to build a sustainable business and be in control of your financial destiny, profitability is really important. And we're seeing a lot of trends moving away from growth at all costs to how do you build a a sustainable business, especially with the market dynamics today. And I definitely want to pivot and talk about you as an entrepreneur and a founder. Growing up, did you always want to run a business? Oh, no. <laughs> I I remember calling my parents and saying, I'm going to start a company. And I think they fell off their chairs. I mean, they were shocked. You know, I've always been a leader and I've always enjoyed taking a leadership role, but I never thought I would start my own business. And in fact, when I was thinking about a transition in my career and moving outside of a big agency, Initially, I thought I would join a startup because I was so inspired by the energy and I had many friends joining early stage companies and I just saw their excitement about building something and being so high impact and that always was very appealing to me and I was always happiest in roles where I could really get my hands dirty and really make an impact and really be part of something. But no, I did not think that I was a founder and in fact, you know, it took someone actually sitting down with me and saying, I think you could build something for me to even begin to dream about what that would look like. And I think it's an incredible gift to be able to encourage people to follow their dreams or to even get them excited about what a dream could be. Yeah, I, I wasn't, it wasn't part of, it wasn't part of the plan. I was not on this journey of how do I become an entrepreneur. What were some early challenges and lessons you learned about the entrepreneurial lifestyle? Oh, God. (laughs) There's so many. You know, I think everything takes longer than expected. I think that feedback is a gift and can also be a curse. I think staying true to yourself and your vision is critical. People talk about resilience, and I think that's sort of an overused word, but there has to be this sense of determination and passion for what you're building that allows you to block out the noise. And for me, I think my the biggest thing early on was just like not to sweat the small stuff. Many entrepreneurs and founders are incredibly type A and we love perfection and we love making things perfect. And I think part of the pressure that you feel as a founder is if you make a misstep, you know, it's going to create this huge impact and derail your business or cause a failure. And I think it took me some time to realize that perfection is not what is most important. Progress is really important. And and we are our own worst critics. And so if you can get out of your way and just focus on, on progress, not perfection, it's, it can just, it can unlock so much. There's a community aspect for me that I learned early on how important it was to have a community of other founders, people that were just a little bit ahead of the journey, people that were much further ahead in the journey to be able to talk to, people that just really get it inherently. 
I was talking to a friend the other day about the early days, and I remember him specifically asking, you know, what do you do every day? And like, it just being so soul crushing to even answer that. I'm like, what do you mean? What do I do every day? I do everything. And so having a community of people that really get it, like truly get it and have been there is so validating and so helpful, especially during the tough times. Yeah, I was definitely going to ask, especially as a solo founder, how do you take care and balance your mental health? (laughs) I do my best. And some days I do it really well, and some days I absolutely fail. Um, You know, I think for me, prioritizing my physical and mental health is something that I've has been in and out of my journey, but I exercise regularly. I try to eat well. I try to get sleep. And as a founder who has built a brand around sleeping well and comfort in the bedroom, <laughs> um, those days that you don't get sleep are pretty ironic. But like I said earlier on, I think I've, I've done a pretty good job of knowing when to ask for help. I think being vulnerable as a founder can be scary because people expect you to have all the answers and it can be easy to worry that if you don't have all the answers, it means you're not enough or you aren't suited for the job. And I think it's quite contrary. I think being able to ask for help and knowing um, when you need support or when you need to take a break or how to avoid burnout just allows you to be a better leader, a better founder, a better partner, a better team player. And so for me, it's been really focusing on that throughout the journey as much as possible. And when it comes to running a team, how would you describe your leadership style? I try to be very empathetic and transparent. As a leader, it's your job to be a visionary, to be able to set the tone, to be able to get people excited about what you're building. And I think that only happens effectively if everyone has the same kind of common goal and there's clear language around that. And so I would say that I set to inspire and to support. I think for me, I always knew that I was happiest when I was learning. And so being able to create an environment where people are always learning and growing, I think is critical to retaining talent and also just getting the most leverage out of your team. And so I try to be a real partner in career development and in growth and to keep everyone curious and excited and learning. But I would say empathy and transparency has really been two of the things that I've focused on the most. And it's, I think it's, it's paid off. How would you describe also the work culture? Was there any type of working culture you set out to build as you were growing and expanding the company? Like, I guess even things where from your old corporate jobs, remember like, oh, I want to do this for my company as well. Or like, I want policies like this. Yeah, I would say many of my roles helped me set the tone of what I didn't want to do. I grew up my early days were in jobs and PR and culture that I found to be rather toxic. You know, this idea that there's always someone waiting for your job and, you know, work harder and there's no semblance of work-life balance, which as an idea is doesn't really exist anyway. But there was just this idea that, you know, you were there to work and to work and to work. And if you didn't work there was like a competition around how many hours you would work a day versus how well you were working. And so I think for me, it was really about creating a culture that was supportive, that believed in work-life balance, that encouraged people to speak up, to have autonomy, to be courageous, to make mistakes, and to learn. 
I wanted an organization that felt very collaborative. And I think one of the benefits of building a brand that people really connect with is that people connect with the brand itself. And so much of who we are as a brand comes from who we are as a team. And so we've been able to attract talent and people that, you know, believe in the vision and the mission, which makes our job that much easier, but also bring people in that want to be part or that feel that passion for who we are and what we're doing organically. And it creates just a really great environment for building. But I really wanted to be kind of the antithesis of that culture of never stop working and and create an environment that encourages people to get inspiration from all over and to have a life. And I think that when people are happy, they work better and smarter and harder. And so that's something that we've really focused on, but really being committed to the people, to learning and development and creating a culture that's enviable. I mean, that's always been one of our, one of the most important things to me and to the organization. So I have one more question, and that is, what is next for you as a founder, but also Parachute as a company? We've got so much going on. You know, we are continuing to introduce new products, new fabrics, new designs, new categories. We are leaning into more experiential events. So you'll be seeing a lot more of that. That's something that we're really trying to focus on from a marketing perspective. I think we're seeing that as a trend throughout the industry. People just really getting back to immersive experiences and things that bring brands to life in a way that is not so much about the transaction but more about the relationship. And that's always been something that we've cared about, but really bringing that to life in our stores across the country and more. But we've got a lot going on. Some exciting collaborations, partnerships. Ooh, collaborations. It's going to be a fun year. Well, we're excited to see what happens. Yeah, stay tuned. But for now, thank you so much for coming on. It was my pleasure. It was such a nice chat. Thank you for having me. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>